0: So I have a disclaimer at the start of this message. Uh, I want to give credit to Dave Mitchell. Dave Mitchell is uh, one of the men that I consider a pastor to me. And uh, much of this sermon is inspired by a sermon he gave about six months ago. And I've made some changes. I've made it my own. Uh, But I have no problem using his argument because he said I could. And he got it from someone else. Uh, Much of the reason I wanted to share this message is... Uh, a quote that Dave said in his message from someone else. So there's nothing new under the sun, but I'm not trying to uh, uh, say that this was all my idea uh, because it wasn't. Um, But the best way to describe it is if this is like a a research paper, it's it's a highly cited uh, Dave Mitchell. He'd be at the top of the bibliography. Uh, So let's begin. The book of Judges... There's this repeated cycle in the book of Judges where God's people, they go after other gods. They worship other gods and they're taken over by their enemies. Uh, That's that's one of the consequences that God gives them. And then after some time of rock bottom living, you know, they kind of reach the place of rock bottom and then they repent. They turn back to the one true God. They call out to the Lord and the Lord raises up a judge, raises up a leader, a deliverer for his people. And as long as this judge, as long as this deliverer is alive, um, the, the people do well. But once this deliverer dies, the, it's, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before God's people turn away from the one true God and they begin worshiping false gods, idols. And so one of these deliverers was Samson. You might have heard of him. He was a really strong dude. Samson Was an Israelite. But for some reason, against all conventional wisdom, all of the wisdom and the support of his Israelite community, he falls in love with a Philistine woman. The Philistines were sworn enemies of God's people. So, against all the counsel of everyone in his life, Samson gets engaged to this Philistine woman. He wants his parents to go get her for them, and he doesn't take no for an answer. So they're engaged, and they throw this huge engagement party. And at this party, uh, Samson invites the, the friends of his fiancé to a battle of wits. Samson says, all right, let's make a bet. I've got a riddle for you. And if you can solve the riddle in seven days, I'm going to give you 30 suits of clothing. Now, this was a high stakes gamble. This is very valuable back in their day. 30 suits of clothing I will give to you if you can solve the riddle. But if you cannot solve the riddle, you must give me 30 suits of clothing. And so four days into this battle of wits, they're stumped. They don't have any idea. And so the Philistines go to his fiance, their kinsman, and says, look, get him to tell you the answer to this riddle, or we're going to burn you and your father's household alive. Pretty nice people, the Philistines, huh? Well, she puts on an Oscar-winning performance and says, Samson... Tell me the secret to your riddle. Samson, you don't love me. You never loved me. You won't even tell me the answer to your riddle. And so Samson gives in to her manipulation and tells his fiance the answer. And then what do you know? The next day, all of her friends come back with smiles on their faces and say, hey, um, we got the answer to your riddle, Samson, because they got it from her. And in a rage, Samson goes out and kills 30 other Philistines, rips the clothes off their back, and says, here you go. There's your payment. (laughs) Samson had lots of problems. We're about to see that today. And as the reader, at this point in the story, you just got to be thinking, man, terrible mistake, but I'm sure glad Samson got this problem out of his system, right? (laughs) He's not going to make that mistake again, surely, But, chapter 16, a little later, that that relationship just, you know, totally falls apart. Totally falls apart. The story continues, though, and Samson falls in love with another Philistine woman. Her name is Delilah. This time, the leaders don't make a gamble with Samson. They just go straight to Delilah, and they say, tell us the secret of his strength. Tell us what makes him able to whoop all of our butts all the time. Why is Samson so strong? What, how can he do this? T- you get to the secret, and we will pay you a hundred sil- uh, silver shekels. So it's time for Delilah to put on her Oscar-winning performance. She says, "Tell me the secret to your stre- to your strength, Samson. You don't love me. You never loved me, and you won't tell me the secret if you don't tell me the secret to your strength." And so Samson, oops, sorry, Samson gives her a loyalty test and says, "Okay." Uh, If you get seven fresh leather straps and you tie me up with these fresh straps of leather, I will become as weak as any other man. And so Samson goes to sleep, and while he's asleep, uh, Delilah ties him up, you know, with the leather straps, and then she yells, Samson, the Philistines are on you. They're right upon you. Wake up. And he snaps the leather straps, and he goes and runs those bad guys off, okay? And you're thinking, dude, you got to dump Delilah, She just proved herself untrustworthy. She sold you out. She's just like the last one. She doesn't love you. But something inside of Samson is broken. And he goes back to her. And she puts on another Oscar-winning performance. You don't love me. You never love me. In fact, you hate me. And The the next thing happens. Samson tells another lie. This time it's seven new ropes. If you tie me up, I'll be as weak as any man. So Delilah waits till he's asleep, ties him up with seven ropes, and then yells, the Philistines are here. Samson wakes up, snaps the ropes, and runs him off. And we're thinking, dude, what's wrong with you? You're still in love with a woman who wants to kill you. Go get some help. Talk to your small group. Like, play it forward. How's this going to end, Samson? Play it forward. To which Samson seems to say, dude, I got this under control. I got this under control, let me take care of myself. I'm a grown man. But the same thing happens again and Delilah continues. She says, you hate me, you really hate me because you won't tell me the source of my strength. When all the time she's been selling him out and Samson gives her one more line. This time it's like tie my hair into braids and like tie me down by my hair into fabric and I'll become as weak as any man. Same result. He snaps his hair out when he wakes up to Delilah's plea to go run off the Philistines, and he does, he runs them off. But then Delilah puts on her final performance, and she says, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? You keep making a fool out of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Did, Did you catch that? You keep making a fool out of me, Delilah says. She's the one that's been tying him up. She's the one that's been tying him down by her hair. And verse 16 of Judges 16 says, With such nagging, Delilah prodded Samson day after day until he was sick to death of it. So Samson tells Delilah the truth. If you shave my head, I'll be as weak as any other man. And you know how the story goes. When Samson falls asleep, she actually shaves his head, and this time... When he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go and shake myself free as I did before, he couldn't because he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. And he's easily overcome by the Philistines. They gouge out his eyes. They put him into prison. And we're thinking, dude, this is the result of your self-destructive tendencies. This is the result of your terrible thinking, your terrible choices. Samson, you can absolutely dominate other warriors, but you can't vanquish your own lust and codependency and self-destructive habits. He could defeat giants without, but he can't defeat giants within. Somewhere along the way, he should have recognized what was happening, and he should have seen where it was leading, but his pain predictor, His ability to see future pain out in the future was broken. He had a flashlight that was shining right at his feet when it should have been shining way out there to see what was going to happen. And it ended with him blindness, incarcerated, and lost, grinding grain in a Philistine prison. The only redemptive option he had at the end was he got invited into a Philistine party and he got mocked there and then he pushed the key pillars of that building down And he killed all the Philistines and he killed himself in the process. So that's the story of Samson. And I just got to ask at this point, do you know who or what in your life is your Delilah? Do you know your crisis? Maybe it's a thought pattern. Maybe it's a person or a relationship. A habit that you know has no place in your life because it only tears you up it doesn't build you up. It's not pure, not admirable, not excellent or praiseworthy. You don't want other people to know about it because you're rightly ashamed. And you might think you have it under control, but the truth is, it has you under its control. So here's a few examples pornography. If that's in your life, it's a crisis, it's a Delilah. People pleasing. If you just have to make everyone around you happy all the time, or if you have to be successful in order to feel like your life has any value, that is a crisis. And it might be a crisis for you that you've not ever learned to make consistent time with God. You, you know that that's a good thing, to spend time with God every day in prayer and scripture reading. But, you know, we all make choices. We all have the same amount of time in the day. And if that's not part of your life, is that a crisis? for you? Maybe you do spend time with God every day, but you do so out of this self-righteous attitude. I know the story of Samson. In fact, I got bored while you were telling it because I've heard it a thousand times. But is this attitude of self-righteousness a crisis? I mean, if, you're, if you pay attention to Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees, I mean, you can see that self-righteousness, it really should be a crisis if it's in our lives. And so here's the quote that was just so helpful for me when I heard Dave give a sermon on the story of Samson. And it's a a quote from Gordon MacDonald. And MacDonald says this, transformation, which is what we're talking about, training for godliness. It's about changing our character on the inside, being changed by the Spirit of God. Transformation is always a crisis followed by a process, So as much as we don't like to talk about our crisis, acknowledge our crisis, deal with our crisis, we have to. We have to be aware of our crises. Because if you're not connected to your crisis, then what's your process gonna be like? Is there even gonna be a a process? And if there's no process, then there's no transformation. If you're not really connected to your crisis, it makes me question the effectiveness of your process, the end result. The goal of your process, the goal of a daily quiet time with God is not a daily quiet time with God. It's a deepened love relationship with God, your heart following your investment. And God gives us these crises, He allows these crises in our lives to clarify our mind, to reveal our blind spots to impact us and jar us out of spiritual ruts that we have created for ourselves. Crisis makes us uncomfortable enough to change because nobody ever changes until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain required to change. You have to look at your life, look at yourself, and say, there's no way, there's nothing that can keep me where I'm at right now. I must change the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain required to change. You've got to look down the horizon of the future, have that flashlight up, and be able to see that in order to move forward. Transformation is always a crisis followed by a process. And if this is your first sermon with us in this series, we've been talking about this process a lot, this process of training for godliness. Last week we talked about how this is a lifelong process, We gotta be in it for the long haul. This is an endurance race. But, But this is where McDonald, I think, gets really profound. The second half of his quote. Transformation is always a crisis followed by a process, and when we fail at the process, we must return to the crisis. When we fail at the process, we must return to your crisis. So the real question is, how long can we sustain the process? How much relief do you need before you let up on the process, before you take your foot off the gas pedal and go back to the patterns which brought about the crisis in the first place? I mean, can you make this change permanent? Can it become part of who you are? This new process actually becoming the new you. You see, after the first offense, after Delilah broke, Samson's trust, or even after that first relationship, Samson could have sought counseling, like marriage counseling. He could have refused to play this game with Delilah that she kept inviting him back into. He could have resolved every single day to pray that God would make her into a woman worthy of his trust. He could have asked guys around him in his life to make sure that I don't give in. Call me, text me every single day. Stay on me. And and I just want to acknowledge that this engaging the crisis, it would have been painful. It would have been really, really painful. But he had to choose which is more painful. Which is more painful, staying the same right now or what's about to come in the future? See, self-sacrifice is going to be required of all of us at some point. And rather than waiting till the end of our life to give it away, I think it's a lot more enjoyable, a lot more beneficial for everyone if we learn how to give it away right now. Jesus says, that's how you actually find the good life, is to lose your life. That's how you can experience life to the full. Lose your life for my sake. But Samson was unwilling to pay the price until the very end. And if you're here, or if if you find yourself throughout the week, just you're just looking for the easy life. I just got to tell you, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find the easy life. But if you're looking for the truly good life, look no further than learning under Jesus. As I reflected on this message, I thought there's a couple objections that rose up in my own heart and I think might be raising up in, in, in your minds and your hearts as well. And so I want to look at two objections to this idea that transformation is always a crisis followed by a process. And when we fail at the process, we must return to the crisis. And the first objection is this. Ben, this kind of sounds like you're catastrophizing. Like, you are following an irrational thought, believing that it, you know, it's, it's far worse than it actually is. You're making this into a bigger deal than it really is. Like, uh, you might be thinking, dude, my crisis, it really doesn't hurt anybody. It's not that bad. I mean, compared to the people out there, you know, doing terrible things in the world, uh, my crisis, I'm not that bad. So aren't we catastrophizing this a little bit? And you have to define what is the single greatest catastrophe? What is truly worthy of crisis level designation in your life? And if you define that on your terms, you're always going to be on the right side of the fence. You're always gonna be just good enough because we like to set the bar just low enough so that we can clear it. Or if we're really good, just high enough so that we can clear it and nobody else can. (laughs) But when God sets the bar, sin is crisis. It's the highest level of crisis, crisis designation. And so trusting in self, even to set that bar ourselves, that is a crisis. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, the word of God says. And so sin is worthy of being designated as a crisis. And until we see our sin as utterly sinful, we won't be ready, willing, and able to make the needed changes. We must wholly believe that the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain required to change when we're dealing with our sin. And it doesn't matter what that sin is. Sin is sin. And by the power of God, we can overcome sin. And we're going to get to that later in this message and next week as well. But you must believe that your sin, it is a crisis. That sin is the greatest catastrophe that we, as humanity, must deal with. And so that's the first objection. Isn't this kind of catastrophizing making this too big of a deal but the second objection might be okay Ben I agree that sin is utterly sinful sin is terrible we all have to continue to engage this crisis this, this, this crisis to return to the process of following Jesus and being changed into his image we've got to engage this but here's my objection Ben isn't this unavoidable I mean even Paul had this problem Ben I, ben, I got a text to show you it's, it's Romans 7 Listen to me, Romans 7, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do, but but what I hate, I do. And Paul goes on and on to say, I find this law within me. Although I wanna do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. And Paul says, Paul says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. And Ben, that's just me. And you know, Jesus' blood has saved me, and I'm grateful for that, but that's just, that's just where I am. And you know, when I, when I die, everything will change. Uh, so, you know, Romans 7. But Romans 7 is not a cop-out verse. Not a cop-out passage for transformation at all. In fact, if you read it, Paul is using crisis language. He's saying, I am in a crisis here And he doesn't end with what a wretched man I am. In fact, he goes on to Romans 8, which is soaring of the glory of living with God in Christ and the glory of ongoing transformation and the glory to come. But he's talking about glory past, present, and future in Romans 8. And we're gonna get to Romans 7 and 8 a little next week. But I just gotta say, If you've kind of grown up with that mindset or that attitude, you've never even maybe articulated it or known that it was in you, but you're like, yeah, that really does explain a lot of my life and a lot of my actions. Romans 7 is not a cop-out verse because here's what he says in verse 24. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God who rescues me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where your thanks be in your crisis? Where is your thanks be? It must be the only option is thanks be to God who rescues me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So don't ignore your crisis. Don't give it away. Don't explain it away. Don't excuse it away. Don't minimize it, repress it, blame, shift it, or deny it, because that crisis is God's gift for the development of your soul, for your growth. God will put you in situations that are so uncomfortable that it's difficult to maintain your previous patterns because he's loving you. He wants to bring about the discomfort, disturbance, and distress so that the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing so that you actually desire and are more and more conformed to become like Jesus on your insides. So don't give that away. Don't ignore that. And please notice, if you think you can play with your crisis, it will play with you. Samson thought he was gaining the upper hand the whole time he was telling Delilah all these stories about how you can make me as weak as any other man. But the crisis was growing in its power. And ultimately had had its way with Samson. So here's the key piece of advice. When we're training for godliness in the midst of engaging whatever crisis is in your life, whatever sin has hold on you, and it doesn't matter how long it's had hold on you or how severe you think that sin is, here's, here's a key piece of advice. Raise your bottom. And that's not a yoga move or a Pilates move. Raise your rock bottom, which comes from the phrase, when you hit rock bottom, the only way to go is up. You gotta raise your rock bottom. We get to define rock bottom. You get to say when, is, when enough is enough. Samson refused to say enough was enough until the very end. You know, he could have said You know, killing 30 people at the end of my engagement party to take off their clothes and give them to my fiance's friends, that's enough. I've had enough. From this point forward, I'm only going out with women who have the same values and spiritual beliefs I do. In fact, I got this community around me that I ignored the first time. This time I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to go out with girls who spiritual beliefs have the same values as me, not whose girls' best friends want to kill me we get to define our crisis and God's spirit is present to help you see and define your crisis and to give us a way out before things get messier than you could ever imagine. We have to redefine rock bottom and isn't that what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount? You know, he said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't murder. You know, like, if you think murdering someone is rock bottom, Jesus is saying, don't get angry with your brother. Raise your rock bottom. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Uh... Jesus says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. Raise your rock bottom. And so for us, the fact, if you've never mentioned Christ to your coworkers, your love for God, to, to your family, or to, to some of your friends, that can become a crisis for you. You know, if, if, you, if you look at your life honestly, and you're like, so apparently I don't have 10 minutes for a quiet time, but I got an hour every single day for Netflix, that can become a crisis for you. That can motivate and propel you into a process that will transform your life. And so here's, here's the key The key element in all this is the, is the good news about Jesus. Jesus said this is the gospel, Mark 115, repent. So ch- change your mind, change your way of thinking. Do a 180, not living life your way, but committed to living life God's way because God is right here. He's available. His presence and his power is right here for you. So you change your thinking. You change your mind about what rock bottom is. Change your mind about what is truly crisis level attention and know that God is present and powerful with you in your midst. Because no matter who you are, how long you've been stuck, if you repent and believe, It's not too late. And it might not happen like the change you want to see might not happen today, might not happen next month, but change will happen. God will change your life. It's not too late. So let's pray. Talk to God about your crisis. Your attitude towards it. Maybe maybe even your awareness of it. Maybe you really don't know. God will kindly, lovingly, specifically point it out to you. If you're here today and you've never turned away from yourself and turned towards God, um, you can today. Admit that you're a sinner. Confess Jesus died on the cross and that he's alive today and that that you want him to lead your life, all of your life. But if you've done that a long while ago, repent and believe today again. Not because you need to be saved or forgiven. You're already forgiven. But because you want to learn how to live under Jesus. And as we sing and end our time together, God, help us to train. Help us to see sin as crisis. And help us to see you as our only hope.